Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Learning Experience Lab, where today we're looking at things from a design perspective. Our guest today is Darren Hood, Senior Alex Designer at Michigan State Uni, who was brought to my attention via my colleague at Feedback Fruits as someone that might be interesting to have on the show. Thanks, Abdullah. Now, learning experiences are obviously something I'm into, but design is a pretty new area for me. So I was keen to find out the ins and outs of Darren's perspective. By the end of it, I had a whole new outlook on why design and user experience thinking is a fundamental and sometimes overlooked aspect in pedagogy. So let's jump right into our conversation, which I started by asking Darren about his current occupations. Let's see. Well, uh, uh, in the daytime, I'm working at as a senior learning experience designer at Michigan State University. And um, I know when you say LX sometimes today, the the question mark will appear over someone's head and they're wondering, uh, what exactly are you doing? Because you could talk to 10, what, I, what I've seen thus far is that you can talk to 10 LX designers and you might get four or five different perspectives. So uh, in general, and the way that we're looking at it is that LX, and I work in what's called the hub for innovation and learning at Michigan State University, and we touch everything. It, and it's the way that I have been viewing LX from 2013 forward is that everything from the time that someone is exposed to the brand all the way to the point where you're enrolling or you're applying for admission, you're enrolling in classes, you're trying to get situated in, in living at the dormitories, you're engaging in the classes, you're engaged with on-campus or school-related activities all the way through graduation, all the way back into the alumni funnel, very holistically. And, and I tend to view LX from a CX perspective. Matter of fact, I see LX as the CX of the academia world, where with UX, you're talking about the engagement with a specific resource or solution, uh, and then CX bookends that. I see LX is doing the same thing. I, I've come across a lot of people when they talk about LX, they're really just interaction designers, or I'm sorry, not interaction, but instructional designers with a little bit more responsibility. But we are that first example. We do everything. So that's what I do today. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also in academia uh, from a more direct perspective because I am uh, an adjunct professor at Kent State University. I'm an adjunct professor at Lawrence Technological University in Southfield, Michigan. And uh, so I, I, I cover a lot of a lot of ground when it comes to experience design as a whole. And I just have the 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 honor, I'll say, of being an educator as well. OK, so you said that's what you do during the day. And what about the evenings? Because you said to me that you or at least I'm inferring that you eat, sleep, live and breathe. Alex, UX. Yes, I do. I never stop. Uh, I, I never stop. If I I could go to the zoo or go to visit someone at the hospital and I'm studying the wayfinding. I, I go traveling and I go to different airports around the world and I love studying their how you can back to wayfinding again. I love studying how easy it is to remember where you parked, how easy it is to navigate through the airport and how the systems are structured. And I'm taking all types of notes. And uh, my favorite was when I went to a, a zoo, I won't name the zoo, uh, and they have since fixed their wayfinding here, but they're here in the States. And the wayfinding was atrocious and they had a sign. I can't remember if we talked about this before. Uh, I needed to go to the restroom and I couldn't remember where the restrooms were. And and it pointed to the right and said, lions are this way, tigers are this way. And then it pointed straight down and said restrooms. That is probably one of the funniest examples I've ever seen of, of God awful wayfinding um, and, and how important it is to, to take experiences uh, and, and try to, to optimize them, whether it's in academia, whether it's using a website, a mobile app, whatever it might be. It just, but I'm, I'm always into things like that. I, I, I also poc I have a podcast that, that uh, is number one right now in that network with, uh, at Michigan State University. And uh, actually half of, my, um, half of my listenership is, is actually overseas. It's, it's, so I've got a, a pretty nice global audience there. So I'm happy about that. About to celebrate a one-year anniversary too. Yeah, in, excellent. In a couple weeks, so I just saw that, that you'd uh, released your 50th episode for the podcast. Yes. So congratulations. Yes. 
okay, I wanted to ask, apart from helping us to find the restroom, what exactly <laughs> makes you care about design so much? What got you started with design? Oh, wow. Um, it's hard to say how I got started in design as a whole, uh, because I really can't. When I look when I look back at my history, I can't track when I first really got started with design. When I started, when I started paying attention to things of that of that nature, I can say that I started doing research when I was ten. Uh, I absolutely hate spiders. I, I detest spiders. I understand they're important to our ecosystem, but I'd rather they do their thing outside of my home at least. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, not a fan of them. I don't want them in my bed. I don't want them in the corner of my room. I don't want any of those things. But I did a report. I was still fascinated, though. And, and I think, and maybe this is really it, because I, I had a conversation with someone yesterday about things that drive design. And one of the key factors is curiosity. And as much as I hated spiders, that curiosity made me dig. And I went into the encyclopedia back in, at, at that time. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, we didn't have Wikipedia. We didn't have these things. I, I went to the encyclopedia. I, I, my mother got me subscriptions to National Geographic magazine, and I would, they would have these pictures. I, I still remember to this day a close-up, which got me into photography as well. This close-up of a wolf spider's face. That when I opened that, that page as a child, and that. Spider's face filled the entire page, and I threw the magazine <laughs> up in the air because it scared me half to death. But it didn't kill my curiosity, and, and I had actually I, I feel comfortable with, with saying that it, it is not that I think about it is is because curiosity is a major driver when it comes to designing experiences. What can we do better? What, are, what problem are we trying to solve? One of the biggest um, uh, assets that any designer can have is a really heightened sense of curiosity, that inquisitive nature that's off the charts because that's gonna drive success in design as well as innovation. Mm. So yeah, I'm comfortable with that. that. That really, I never thought about that before. But yeah, that's probably when the seed was first, was first planted. And then later on, I start modifying things and. And uh, that's when you start to see the ball rolling. And how much does curiosity play into your, yeah, your everyday motivation and drive for design? It's always, how well did I do this? How many, it, curiosity helps me put together scenarios that help with the auditing of an experience. I'm really big. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that, but I have a, a very auditory mindset. What do you mean by that? Towards design. How well, what are we trying to solve? How well did we accomplish that? And, and most notably, I will, if, if, the, if the, we don't have time in many cases, nor is it practical to put together formal personas, but I still do it anyway. Even if I don't put them together for the team to see them, I have personas on every project. If somebody says, we don't have time for that. Okay, well, you don't have time for it, but for me, I need to know who am I designing for? How would they use it? What are their mental models? Um, and then outside of that, I'll come up with 50, 100, 200 scenarios, and then I use those to audit the experience. That, that, that helps me to, to approach things from a more diverse perspective. It helps me to look at things from multiple angles. I mean, just an exorbitant, number of, of, of angles to examine something because that's what's going to help make help me make sure help me to ensure that my design is as foolproof and 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 as successful as possible and i want to optimize that success and so auditing will it work this way okay this it works this way let me try it another way let me look at it from here here's this one-off uh when we're looking at data we tend to throw out the the outlier i want to bring the outlier in i don't want to necessarily make the outlier the the main focus of what i'm doing from a design perspective but i do want to consider it i want to be aware of it to the extent that i can at least answer questions 
when they come up when I'm talking to stakeholders, when I'm talking to clients. Right. So we've got this this mean or this average approach, and then we've got the outlier approach, and I've got X number of of scenarios associated with each. Audit everything based on that, and then I'm comfortable going forward. And and I had somebody ask me the other day, tell me about something where you failed hmm. in your designs, and I said, I didn't. And to somebody that to somebody that comes across as arrogant, and and so I quickly <laughs> had to come behind it because I know where they were going to go when I said that. I said, no, if you are painstakingly just incessant when it comes to the pursuit of excellence, will there be something that you may miss every given time? Because no matter what you design, you're always going to miss something, something somewhere. However. Were the executions successful? Did they achieve the goals? I, I find it I find it hard to believe that some people feel that they fail more than they do, or if they're really being realistic, because if you know the requirements and you know your users and you understand their mental models, and then you design something based on all of those things, what, did you are you really mm. did you really fail? Or are you just going to go back? I mean, we start iterating and working on this, the next version of it immediately. So it's not a failure if there's something that's not accounted for unless you saw it and ignored it. Unless you, so, so I'm, I'm looking at it from that, mm. from that angle. And so I did what we were supposed to do. I turned over every rock 10 times and tried to find things. Even when we were working in an agile environment and we're move, moving fast. There still needs to be attention to detail that is completely uncompromising. Mm. And even when they don't know it, if I have to do things on my own time to make sure that we're turning those rocks over 10 times, then I'm going to do it. And so, yeah, that's my commitment. I have a, I have a, a saying, if you touch it, excel at it. And has Period. that always been your approach? It actually has. Okay. It actually Look, has. I need to rephrase that question. <laughs> Not what's been your biggest failure, but what's been your biggest aspect of growth or something that you've changed in that you've noticed over the years? The big, my biggest change over the years, which is, I think that's a phenomenal question. And it's something I think a lot of up and coming designers need to know is that when you first get started in experienced design, we don't have, did not have, a concept that this is an ego-free arena. We did not understand that thick skin is required. And when I first started doing experience design full time, you, you put a lot into it. What I just described, you put a lot of effort into making sure that you do things the right way, only to have somebody act like it's nothing and just blow it off. And so when you first get started and that happens to you, it's mind blowing. Nobody ever told you it was going to happen. Uh, I tell people now that it's going to happen, but nobody ever told me that it was going to happen. And when you put forth a lot of effort just to be ignored and to have people do something whimsical, it, it, it actually has a really severe <laughs> impact on you to the point where I, I know people who've walked away from the discipline because they just couldn't take it. That's where I've had my biggest growth. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with former, a former um, a manager who it, it floored me so bad that I walked away from that particular company because I had in my mind, okay, well, it's only like that at this company. I'm going to go somewhere else. And I ended up leaving somewhere, leaving that company for a very short period of time and I had a conversation, we, we, we talked and I was gonna come back. And, and he gave me the talk of, of my life when it came to that shift, because I would no tell, I could have walked away from UX at the time and never returned. But he said, he talked to me about something that he referred to, and I still embrace it to this day, healthy conflict was what he said. He talked to me about healthy conflict and, and when he, the way that he broke it down, how that there's going to be conflict, but conflict is not bad. If somebody doesn't see things from, from your perspective, even when your, when your 
when you're representing expert voice. If somebody doesn't see it from your perspective, don't worry about it. It's your job to represent. This is what it grew into, what he told me. It's my job to represent, to advocate for users. It's my job to do, th to do that work with the business in mind. And in the process of doing that, once I've done that, I've done my job. I do not own the design. They're, they're pretty much, unless the UX person is the owner of the company, we do not own the design, whether it's LX, whether it's CX, whether it's UX, uh, no matter what, we don't mm. own the design, but we're there to provide expertise. And I have found now after working full-time for 16 years and doing the work overall for, for 25 years, I have found that it's my job to get, be the expert voice, to not be married. I've learned that through this mm. as well. You're not married to the design. And once you have provided the expert opinion and the expert recommendations, your hands are clean and you move on to the next project and that's it. But don't be married to it. And, and that's the biggest area that I've grown in that's helped me to be, it, it's really helped to optimize my mental health, mm. to, to optimize my, my perspectives. And it, it, it took the roof away from my ability to grow, I feel as an experienced designer, because if you get wrapped right. up in what people say about what you recommend, or you're going to get boxed in and the frustration will eventually, it will overtake you. Indeed, if you know, yeah. for those who don't understand it, like I've seen many who have, and they, they walk away, they can't, they can't take it anymore. Many people don't understand it at all and it stops them before they get started. So how has this journey that you've been on, fed into what you now do as a learning experience designer. How did that transition happen towards learning experience and how is it different? The, I actually, and this sort of takes me back to the beginning a little bit as well. I, I designed my first website in 1995 and right around the same time, I started doing instructional design work, like going all the way back to my early career way before experience design came into play, no matter what I did, I would always end up training someone. And I, of course, had no idea that what that was going to turn into. So about the same time that I start designing websites, I'm working for a company where I'm a desktop support person. I'm going out fixing people's computer problems and, and that turned into answering software questions. And that turned into starting to take on training for the company. And, and uh, the HR was helping so much when it came to training that the HR department wanted me to move from IT into HR. And I, and I got my first full-time training gig. They also are the ones who helped me to further my, my goals. And I thought that was the way my, that my career was going. Uh, and I got four instructional design certifications, including a master trainer certification. I'm thinking, okay, this is the direction I'm going. I'm loving this training thing. But at the same time, I had in the evening, I had this, this web design business. And that's where I was using what we now know as different user experience principles to get that work done. Eventually I, I ended up getting a bachelor's in it. And, and then I'm thinking that I'm going, I love, I love what I'm doing with education. So I'm going to go after a master's in education and that's going to be the direction of my career. But I was really loving what I was doing with the web design. Yeah. And I, I, I uh, said, you know what? Uh, things are really, I think things are really changing. I actually helped establish a web design department at one of the companies where I worked. I designed 23 websites for them. I did all of the UX work. I did all of the interaction design work, all the interface design work. I even designed logos. And I started thinking, you know what? This is the direction I need to go. So the learning experience related things, the instructional design took a back seat, but it didn't go away. I still continued mm -hmm. to train people. I still continue to help out in that arena. And over the years, I started noticing the intersect between UX, we came to, by that time, we came to refer to it as UX, but I also started calling it LX and it actually missed the boat on this because I started talking about LX in 2013. I started seeing, I, matter of fact, I transitioned into UX because of the strong knowledge base that I had 
from an instructional design perspective, I saw direct parallels. Uh, I was doing task analysis hmm. in 1999. Hmm. And then when I transitioned into UX, task analysis helped give me a strong understanding of micro interactions and micro experiences that helped me to optimize the designs that I was working on. So, so very easy. And I thought moving from instructional design to, to, to UX was perfect because a lot of the tenets I found to be the same. You need good information architecture. You need to have strong interaction design principles because I was doing a lot of web and computer-based training yeah. as well, more so than the instructional-led stuff. I was doing more web and then, as a matter of fact, I was, a, I was on the advisory board for Captivate when it was with Macromedia. So for anybody who's using Captivate, I'm still in that product today. <laughs> Basically, so that that's how much I was in tune with those things. But the principles were the same, so it was easy. So it's not that you've gone to from UX to LX; it's that you've always been doing LX in some aspect. Hmm. Basically, I just expanded my view, and and especially from a CBT and a WBT, as we called it, perspective, we need to make sure that what is the flow in the learning experience? Are we uh, I, I was the one that was making sure w w when I would do the CBT work, uh, I actually designed a solution for a company that was sending salespeople to train on software to help manage credit unions across the across the United States. I developed a CBT that helped that was so successful that the salespeople stopped traveling to do the training. It, it all went from in person to CBT, but it was the the implementation of the principles that I still use today as a, as a UX person mm. that came into play. I conducted usability testing on the CBT courses to make sure that they were going to be received properly once they were distributed. So mm. before I was doing the, the yeah. UX stuff, I'm doing these things. And did we, is the task covered? Because I had to get the subject matter experts to understand the task properly or the training wasn't going to work when we nailed it. What's the contrast or the similarity to academia because i personally see the world of business and institutional academia as two distinct animals from what you've said it seems like you're applying a lot of lessons is there a gap and what does that look like i think some people might see that there is a gap i saw it as at its core i saw it as the same uh, I can definitely see where someone would feel there's, the see there's a gap, but I think that the gap has to do with the deliverable and the overall goals. It, it's when you do that kind of work in the corporate environment, what you're doing is tied to profit. It's tied to employee experience. It's tied to uh, training that I did for one company was strictly to help them overcome attrition. They, they had too much attrition. And so I put together an entire set of courses uh, to, to help help people to understand the business a bit more so that they could take more pride in being there. And that was part of the strategy in helping to overcome the attrition. So, so that's where the goal, the goal shifts. In mm -hmm. academia, people are on the, the path to obtaining a degree. And the degree, the purpose of getting a degree is to help them function in the real world. So in understanding all of these goals, those have to be kept in mind as you're designing the courses yeah, that not just, we can't just help them to get through this course. I need to help them to have confidence when they're out of this school. And that's in my mind. I don't, I don't know. I don't think everybody is doing that. I think a lot of people do things where it's wrapped into the, the, that immediate goal that is very short sighted, that it's, yeah. it, it doesn't have the long-term perspectives in mind. I do. I, I think that you need to make sure that you're covering the, the long-term perspectives, that they, they get it now, they get it for the moment, they get it for the course, and you're also helping to, to, to plant seeds and can be very, very sound when it comes to the long-term. And, and then they will always see that course and that experience they had in the course as being valid and valuable which turns back that, that now that's gonna help with the, whether people like it or not, academia is a business too. They don't like to look at it that way, but there's a BX. There's, I always say that CX plus UX equals, equals BX. The, the brand experience is always based on what you've done with the other channels of the experience. So if you throw LX in there with academia, 
uh, which is going to take the place of CX in my mind, then LX plus UX equals BX, the brand experience. People are going to love or hate a, an institution based on the experience that they had, the course, the admission, the, the dormitories, the, the food, the, the, the way that the teachers interact, mm. the, wh whether or not the teachers were empathetic or, because uh, that's a part of LX that people miss. Are we putting empathy into our, our experiences in academia? Uh, because when you don't, especially today with social media, somebody's going to get out there and tell everybody how great or how terrible you are. What do you mean by putting empathy into our courses? Uh, the instructors need to humanize mm -hmm. the learning experience. You know, don't don't look at this. Every student has a student number, but don't look at them as a number. They're a human being. Mm -hmm. I've had courses before and my, my all the teachers I've had my entire life don't know this, but I have to me, every learning experience that I've had, it's about the teacher. Every lesson within the course, not just the course, but every lesson within the course, how well is it is it structured? The way that the instructor will support you throughout the course. The 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 way that reference any reference materials will help you once the course is over. Empathy has to be interwoven. And all those things. So it's the way that the again, the way that the instructor engages with you, the way that they that they provide feedback. And when I was getting trained for 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 my certifications, they always to told us that good instruction consists of three components: presentation, application, and feedback. Okay. So how strong is that presentation? How thorough is it? How accurate is it? How trustworthy is it? Is it structured in a way where step-by-step, step, that's where the task analysis mm -hmm. comes in, step-by-step, step, did they actually, were they actually given what they needed to understand and perform the tasks that are building that level of expertise and acumen that they signed up for the course for in the first place? And so when you're empathetic, you understand what their goals are, you understand what their challenges are. You understand what where their anxieties might be concerning that subject matter. And so when you put everything together, when you put that coursework, that experience together, when you when you take all these things into consideration, you can design the course in such a way where it doesn't just give them the information like a robot. That's that robotic instructional design where you just this is what you need to know and you need to know it and if you don't get it then too bad that's not empathy some people are challenged by certain by certain subject matter some people have certain uh, issues that they have to overcome one of the biggest issues associated with empathy is that uh, I'll take a topic such as statistics it is like one of the least favorite favorite topics on the planet guilty yeah and, and, and ironically I have taken four, my memory serves me correctly, it's at least three, but I believe four times, about to be a fifth, time that I've taken statistics over my entire academic career, and I have not one time had someone, had someone actually teach the course, even though I had instructors, and I have never had instructional design that was put together in a way that was reflective of this massive anxiety that exists all over the world when it comes to st to statistics. It, it is a very arrogant subject. The, the, the statistics is the only subject I've ever seen where every time they go to present a concept, oh, this is ANOVA, and ANOVA was created by uh, John Jellybean. Uh, in in 1942, and I'm not the name and the dates are incorrect. I'm just trying to make a point. Uh, when I'm trying to learn this, I don't care who created it, and I don't care when it was created. Why do you? Those are the types of things that narcissists do. And, and so it's a it's a it's a. I've been doing some research on narcissism recently, and I I can say that I feel safely that. That statistics is a as a heavily it, it's a necessary thing. It's a great thing. I've loved statistics since I was a child, and 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 would would take the newspaper apart and write down information from box scores to create statistics. I did that as a kid. That's how I entertained myself. That's one of the ways I did it. But 
what what I've seen in the presentations, they're never cognitively friendly. So this is an so I don't go on a tangent about about statistics. The this is an arena that is like practically void. It's a, it's almost extinct when it comes to bringing a an empathetic approach to designing the core the experience. It's like learning instructional designers aren't really getting involved from what I've seen. Learning experience designers aren't getting involved, and nobody cares that nobody's learning. Mm. And then when you get a teacher who in some cases doesn't really do want to even be teaching the course, then it's going to get even worse. And now empathy is pushed even further away. When you get teachers that say, hey, this class, this subject matter is an, is an anxiety point for many learners. I need to watch how I approach it. The, the instructional design, I had a course recently. The teacher was, was not empathetic. The, the instructional design was pathetic. They knew it all the way up to the dean. They knew that the course design was terrible, and they were in, and, and I had it expressed to me. But if that's the case, I had another teacher, same situation. Instructional design is bad, but the teacher was empathetic, and so the teacher shifted the way that they approached the class. That's what's needed. That's one of the things that's needed. Yeah, in academia. You need, and you need to know when to be empathetic. Right. So I've taken away two things from the value of uh, an LX perspective to course design. And yeah, the latter most, that's empathy speaks for itself. You've just explained it very well. And a question comes to mind, um, how much empathy can an instructor put in when it's lacking from the, uh, the user interface and experience side? But uh, the other thing that I took away was that learning experience is useful because it looks at the holistic picture. It's yes. not just what's happening in a course, what are the learning objectives, activities, but how is that experience happening from start to finish? Yes, yes, it is. True, what I'll call true learning experience, definitely holistic. If we, if somebody is looking at the learning experience and that, that analysis, that analytical eye, that lens is only focused on the course, that's still instructional design because it's limited to that. But the learning experience, which a lot of people in academia, I think people are starting to think about it this way. The, the view has to be broadened because mm -hmm. learning, the learning experience cannot possibly be limited to the classroom. No, what, that that which is, there's, <laughs> uh, there's overlap, isn't there, between learning experience design and instructional design. Oh, I definitely. mean, as yes. someone who's kind of dabbling in instructional design, I mm -hmm. see the importance of learning community, of opportunities for collaboration, but perhaps they yes. are centered on achieving results for the end goal of getting those grades, passing that yes. course. And how much of that is then going, okay, before in the branding of the institution, how much of that is going in after in the development and consolidation of career skills, of yes. socialization, of work readiness, career readiness? Absolutely, absolutely. And so when we broaden and look at it that way, the students win, mm. <laughs> the, 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 they're, the, the instructors will get less flack from the students because they feel more supported. Um, enrollment goes up. So the brand has, it looks different. People look at that institution. Well, hmm, but they've got what I like to call the warm fuzzies when they think about that. And that's the reflection of the BX or the brand experience because of all these things. So, and a lot of people, you could put together well-designed course, great teacher, but if things are happening on the campus that make that student feel unsafe or make them feel alienated, it will translate into the classroom. Coming through the door of the, the door gate of that student now, because now they're bringing all the anxieties and the annoyance and the frustration factors, the pain points that they're experiencing outside the classroom are now going to be reflected potentially in the work that's being done. And so the work that's being done is no longer a reflection of that student's acumen or commitment. It's actually more or more of a reflection of the of the all the different anxieties and the other elements, which is why LX needs to take all those other things into consideration, because if if it's not things are not going well. Uh, then you're, you could have some, some attrition. You could have, you could have students that decide to leave the school. Mm -hmm. Um, you have students who no longer feel confident and they could 
keep other people from wanting to to uh, attend the school. Absolutely. They could go online and write a and write a review. And how many people are going to see that review? I, I've heard about that before, where people will read a review that someone wrote. But that's that person. I mean, people don't in general don't know how to write reviews. The average mm-hmm. person doesn't know how to write a review. But that doesn't stop ten thousand people from reading that review. Sure. So now you've got an issue because you've taken something that is a a subjective experience, but presented it with an objective eye. Yeah. Or what looks like an objective eye when an objective review is based on a set of standards that you really are going to subject multiple institutions to. Whereas a subjective eye is this is what happened to me and this mm-hmm. is what I think. But people write what happened to them and present it as if everybody needs it, that as if it's going to happen to everybody. And that's not necessarily the case. Mm. So, so we need to be aware of those those things. Yeah, and I think no one can deny that the role of institution of university is really changing. Uh, you know, yes. as hybrid learning, as digital learning becomes more a thing, as employee employers require different degrees, skills, qualifications from people. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've convinced me honestly, and it's not really hard <laughs> to see the picture that universities need to start looking at their holistic experience and not just one single aspect of their course design, of their program structure, of their uh, instructional design, implementation and adoption. Yeah, mm. you just made me think of something too. I, mm. I think because at the core of, of learning experience uh, is, is instructional design. And I have come across institutions that really sorely lack. So when you have some institutions that are starting to get on board and it is spreading, and the, the degree programs in LX are starting to pop up. Um, if an institution is just getting their feet wet, it's okay to start at the instructional design level. If that's where you need to start, there's nothing to lose in making sure that instructional design is solid. Yeah, I think a lot of institutions <laughs> are just opening that door and starting to see yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, because if the learning, if that experience is bad, nothing else is going to matter. Absolutely. You can have the greatest mascot. You can serve filet mignon every day in the cafe. It's not. It's not going to overtake the fact that the learning experience is bad. And all of my bad, all of my worst experiences in my academic career, m- most notably from 2003 till today. Yeah, that's a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees. And uh, a grad cert in educational technology, starting a doctoral degree over three times because you can't transfer those courses. Mm. So I'm, I'm four classes away right now from my dissertation, but I started that that, that doctoral thing over three times. So from 2003 to 2021, my worst experiences are always with one of two things or a combination of the two, mm. bad instructional design, which I usually do not get a good grade if the instructional design is bad. I don't, and I'm and I'm an honor student everywhere I've gone, um, from uh, it's cum laude something all the mm. way up, or a teacher that is completely, I mean, like somebody uh, put us put a uh, put in a needle and sucked all the <laughs> all of the uh, empathy out of them, uh, and and when you get a combination of the two, it's just. You just got to try to make it through. Moving away from negative experiences, uh, terrible (laughs) teachers and instructional design. You mentioned the last time we spoke a little bit about feedback fruits. I just wanted to ask, what had you seen about the tool suite already? I, when I saw it, when I was first introduced to it, I fell in love with it. Not just as a, as an instructor, but also as a, as a student. Um, I saw several things. Uh, most notably, I love how it facilitated collaboration. I love how it inspired the student, almost from a, a gamification perspective, in a sense, because the notices were there. The things were prominent. The way to engage were prominent. You're encouraged to give to give feedback. Uh, the interface was clean. It was highly scannable from a UX. Uh, side of things, very easy for the eye to move around. The the calls to action stood out. The the notifications and the status uh, statuses associated with the students. Uh, if you're looking at it as a student, or if you're looking at it as as an as an instructor, the different status elements, the flags, 
everything just popped. I mean, this thing was so critical. I ran back to to Michigan State and to Kent State. I hope that if they ever see this, please, please sign up for Feedback Fruits uh, immediately to, to get these because I think it really, really enhances the way that that students interact with one another. And I think it, it really helps enhance the way that instructors are engaging with the students. And so anything that optimizes and makes the learning experience better, it's a must-have for me. Absolutely. Uh, very supportive cognitively. It helps people to, there's, there, there was no addition of cognitive load. It didn't generate any mental chatter. The UX was off the charts. The CX of it was was off the charts to me. And, and and just just a huge win and mega kudos to those who who are behind this application because mm. of of the potential that it holds and the impact that it can make and I've I have never seen anything like it in my travels and and it's huge because what feedback fruits is attempting to address happens to be a huge pain point arena in 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 academia particularly online learning and that is what it it's it's phenomenal it because People don't like engaging in giving feedback. Uh, sometimes, a lot of times, I'll see students that when it comes to giving someone else feedback, they don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, the um, there there is a people don't want to say something bad about someone else where they they're afraid to say something that a lot of people haven't had the experience of being exposed to a lot of constructive criticism and 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 understand the value point of it and that it's not personal and there's you know don't take well, it, it comes insult, back to what you said conflict isn't intrinsically bad it's conflict not, it's helps not bad. Us grow, right yeah it does it does if we if we look at the one of the things i, I tell people a lot and, and you look at the content don't ascribe a voice and a tone to it look at the statement for what it is and and if people can learn to separate because we, we, I think we, the average person by reflex assigns a tone to what we read. Because mm -hmm. we've been reading books and things like that since we were a kid. Then we get into this digital arena. Now we're reading emails all over the place. We're reading reviews on Amazon. And we and, and, and we look at movies or things that we, we assign tone yeah. to things. And sometimes we assign the wrong tone. And then now the message loses its potential value. Yeah. But if we separate the two, it helps us to be more constructive. And when we look at that, wow, you know what? That is correct. I'm glad they said that. And then we start, then we shift. We, we have a paradigm shift in our cognition that really helps make us, uh, uh, it blows the lid off of the potential we can have in our transformation as individuals. So I think feedback fruit, fruits helps with that because there is a challenge in doing that. We don't like to admit it, but there's a challenge in doing it. And we, we, you know, you might be comfortable with it. I might be comfortable with it, but these three other people may not be. Mm. So when you are talking about empathy again, when that empathy is taken into consideration in the design, it will impact how the design is deployed yeah. and implemented. And so realizing these people have this, well, why do they feel like that? Well, let's ignore that. The fact is they do feel like that. So let's just just approach it from that angle. Now we can get something done. Now we can innovate. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if the design and product team at Feedback Fruits are listening, they'll be puffing their chests up. Um, but yeah, I, you know, for me, I hear the terms engagement, collaboration so many times every day that they filter into a part of my unconscious where I stop paying attention to them. They become buzzwords, keywords. But yeah, uh, the tools, Feedback Fruits tools try to be built around facilitating the opportunity and a good interface for collaboration, for engagement, for interactivity. And it, yeah, it just seems so general for me to say these things because I've been saying it <laughs> every day for over a year. But yeah. yeah, these are essential parts of a learning experience, right? Engaging with the material. Yes. What did you say? Those three things, uh, assessment, reflection, and- Pre Presentation, application, and feedback. And I didn't, I didn't go over them. I can real quick. If you want presentation is how you give people the information. Like if you watch a video on YouTube, that's presentation. Mm -hmm. Application is when you have an opportunity to practice what you gained during the presentation. So that's when you start to build the confidence. 
because you actually start to do what was communicated to mm. you during the presentation. The feedback is when someone, some authority figure in that experience now lets you know, oh, you did well here. Here, there's five segments. You did well on one, on two, on three, on four. You could improve on five, and this is where you could improve. Now we've run full circle. That's that whole presentation, application, and feedback circle that all learning experiences, direct learning experiences, uh, looking at the, the actual course activity, that evolves around that. And so if the presentation is, is good, Okay, we're good there. If the application, the person gets the exercise and we've properly designed the exercises that give them a chance to apply what was in the presentation, and we hope that the presentation was thorough because if not, they're going to fail at the application. Then the feedback is going to be dysfunctional because you'll criticize them on something they really weren't informed on what to do. Mm. So the feedback, and that's where feedback fruits, of course, aptly named application, uh, comes into play because now people get to get the feedback and now the feedback fruits is helping people in that that full circle engagement for each one of those learning frames. And I'm real old school that I'm, I'm calling those frames. That's what they were called back in the like nineties, eighties and nineties teaching frames. So, so we look at each teaching frame and we're segmenting those and we want to optimize each one. So and feedback fruits is dynamite at helping facilitate that. And I, and I love you said the word facilitation and I was thinking fostering feedback fruits fosters, collaboration it fosters dialogue it fosters communication and all of those things energize those are key energizing points for education without those things there will be no education or a person is going to be guessing and then eventually you run into a feedback loop and if that feedback loop is not constructive then you're not gonna get everything you needed to get. So within academia, we have put together these academic institutions to formalize the learning process. So those things need to be there. Mm. Everything else happens, everything else is happenstance. But these, we have purposely put together this institution so that we can give you, here's, here's these 20 topics, and each one of them consists of eight to 10 uh, um, um, frame learning frames if you will just off the top of my head and in each one of those learning frames you have multiple multiple instances of presentation application and feedback mm -hmm. and that's where feed that's where i think feedback fruit fits in and and touches on that area where feedback is happenstance or it's depending dependent upon simple discussion forms or it 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 has people give feedback but it doesn't really track things or give you those indicators or any metrics that help you to understand how things are flowing where feedback fruits does so now the metrics are informing you mm. and that information helps everybody to know exactly what's going on and maybe i need to step something up maybe i can pull back a little bit or just to know that you've checked off the boxes mm -hmm. in, in a proper way I, I think that it helps really helps do that i i look forward to one day looking up and seeing food feedback fruits in my list of of uh tools that's going to help me get my job done as an instructor me too <laughs> do you have any takeaway <laughs> message for instructional designers it dmus who are just hearing about ux and lx for the first time in this context and who might be hesitant to adopting a new tool suite, to adopting, to, to hiring people such as yourself who are e experts in this field. What's your message to them? I think that one of the big things is the, uh, I'll go all the way back to the my bit on curiosity. I, I'm wondering, I'm hoping that people are curious, or, or oh God, I'll repeat that. <laughs> I'm hoping that people are curious. I'm hoping that people are curious, uh, that I have, have at least sparked or foster some curiosity. Maybe people want to learn about about UX a bit, and and uh, I I challenge them to do that. Um, it can be a tough area to navigate to a great extent, but but there are a lot of good resources out there, and people can tap into them, and you can learn about about UX and how it fits. Um, there are more and more resources associated with LX that I've seen that are starting to pop up. And again, you, a person will have to navigate those waters carefully, but they are out there. And you, as you continue to, to learn about some of these other elements and you're really engaging in innovation at, at, that, at that stage, even if it's on a personal level, uh, but it will start with us as, as individuals. 
And when it starts with somebody as an individual, then that that energy again then transitions to to a group, and then that energy transitions from the group to the institution. And then when it hits that level, then we can start to to foster paradigm shifts and we can enhance the lives of the learners. So for that reason, I, I hope people will just take the curiosity and let it run from there because the ROI out of curiosity is off the charts. And it will all, all has always been off the charts since the caveman made the first round wheel <laughs> or whoever did it <laughs> ever since then. Uh, it'll be funny if we ever found out that the, the original wheels were square. It'll be funny. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. that, that curiosity goes a long way. It, it's a, I, I actually list it in my model for emotional intelligence. Uh, curiosity is one of the elements that's there. You won't see yeah. that with a lot of authors, but I do include it as part of uh, of um, emotional intelligence. So it goes a long way. Yes. And for those looking to foster a paradigm shift towards curiosity, make sure to check out Darren Hood's podcast, The World of UX. (laughs) For more insights into UX and Alex, thank you so much for joining me, Darren. So after our chat, we kept talking about design a while longer, and I got really excited about some of the places I'd seen these processes in motion. Specifically, the design team at Feedback Fruits give us weekly sneak peeks into all kinds of in-development features giving all of us in the team some appreciation for the detail that goes into shaping and positioning every part of the learning experience for those using these tools. Point being, these sessions show us the intricacies behind design choices which have a huge impact on the user, and the brains behind all of that could do with being picked apart. On that note, I would love to get our senior designer Felix connected with Darren, because that would be a conversation worth listening to. In the meantime, well, there's also something coming up in May which I want to mention, and that's InspireEd 2021. On the 26th and 27th, we're hosting an event bringing together higher education leaders, sharing strategies, resources, and ideas, and we're excited to see hundreds of teachers and instructional designers already signing up. We've also got speakers coming from Wharton School of Business, Boston and Cornell University, and Texas A&M International, and possibly still more to come. I might even be co-hosting a small session myself about automated feedback, which I'm super excited about. If you're looking for a window to some of the greatest innovations in pedagogy today, and you've got time to spare on those dates, you should sign up right away, as I can promise you'll take something away from it. Plus, it's free registration, and it'll be loads of fun, and really, probably the best way to kick off your summer. Links below, as always. Considering the time, I'll let that be my sign-off today. Thank you, listener, for staying with me. You are appreciated, and your questions, comments, queries, and suggestions are too. This has been the Learning Experience Lab, and I'll see you next time.